<laughs> I read that wrong. <laughs> All right. Um, it, is this recording now? What's going it on? Is, it is recording. It says recording in the top right hand corner. Well, I will begin by saying welcome. Hello, everybody. Boy, oh, fucking alert. We're here to talk about a journey through the history of the English language. Now, I am a language teacher, and one thing I've noticed is that. Uh, it is quite an interesting language, this language of English. Now, the reason why I teach English is because at some point in the past, I was ruthlessly oppressed by James's ancestors, and they, they, they sneakily managed to take over, and I've now imposed a new language upon me. And so it's my, my endeavor is to master this language and take it back from the English. And one way I'm going to do that is by discovering their history. And, you know, by getting into this, I learned quite a lot about how... God, I'm going to actually say these words, how much the English and the Irish are related and alike. And so it's been a, and this little, little tiny fragment of Europe studying this English language, this little tiny topic branches out into the entire European family in a way that's beyond profound. So we're here, we're here with James, we're here with Invictus. How are you doing, gents? Very well, very well, mate. I will say very quickly, it was very cute. I don't think anyone else can see your face, but you were getting all prepped. Yeah, you were dancing back, backwards and forwards. You were like, hey, welcome everybody to my new podcast. I'm so excited. Today's the day I get to rebel against the English. Ooh! It was very, very cute. So uh, I'm, I'm very well. How are you, Invictus? I might, I might just delete everything, dude, and I'm just call it off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pretty good as well. I'm really interested to hear about this because my grandmother, maternal side, she spoke Frisian, which is a mix oh, between wow. English and German. So um, having a close look on what you're saying there, Boyo, so interesting. Beautiful, beautiful. That's um, that's awesome. Frisian is actually a huge part of the puzzle in this because uh, people. All right, so anybody listening or watching, like I, I'm here with a, a Germanic and an Englishman. So this is this is I'm in a I'm in a pretty tentative place. Let's put it this way: these are the these are the oppressors right here. So um, the the Frisian connection is how they bond together. So there might be a massacre if we're not careful. So let's let's get into it. The 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 main um. The main weirdness about English that I've noticed is that it's a combination of two distinct language groups. So you probably know that there's Latin. You've probably heard about that. That's the Roman language. And there's a, the, the Romance languages are this demographic of languages that are Spain, Portugal, French, Italian, and interestingly, Irish Gaelic has a little bit of a relationship to those as well. English has a lot of that involved in it. It's very, very strange. English has a lot of French words, almost 40%. Like I have a French student and the whole time he's asking me about words. And then I, like I say a word and he says, what is that word? And then I, I say it to him, I spell it out. And he's like, oh, we have that in French. We just pronounce it in a ridiculous way, you know, like, oh, 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 or something like that. So um, th there is a huge amount of crossover, but of course, it's a Germanic language. It's fundamentally premised on the grammar of uh, German. And this has always been a strange one to try to figure out. Now, there is, a, there is a very important reason to understand this. And this gives me a kick because this is about how the English were conquered. The English had... Um, the English had a French ruling class at one point. The English, the French from Normandy, from the top of France, ran up into English, took it over, and established a domination over them. So we get this weird anomaly where we have something like the, the, the food is described as French words. So you have beef, like this is, this is over here in the Latin languages. You have beef, you have pork, you have poultry. This is describing the food as it appears on your plates, whereas... If you are a farmer, if you're dealing with the animal, like the lower class German or Germanic Anglo-Saxons would have been, you would be describing it as a 
the, the animal as what you would actually see it as. You call it a cow, a coo, a pig, a schwein aus Deutsch, or you have a hen as a hund. And so this is a, a very interesting example of how this, this language is like schizophrenic in some sense. It's split between two things. We have this ruling upperly French court influence that was coming in for it. And then Shakespeare will later, later talk about how he blended a lot of French into it as well. And then, of course, you have the Germanic base. And um, thanks, Danke is a good example. And then over in Latin, you have absolutely no relation there at all. You have merci and grazie as well. So. So yeah, that that was a big one. But um, in order to get into that, we have to talk about how, God, I hate looking at this stuff. We we have to talk about uh, how the British took over the world. Because we the reason why the English language is such a big deal is because it is essentially the world language. It is the language of commerce. It's the language of, of everything. And the main reason is more more because of this big place over here, the, the, the American empire, which is now spreading its culture all over the world. But in some ways, English is very synonymous with the idea of the West. And through English, because you have a uniting of Latin and Germanic, you have essentially the entirety of the West represented in this language, because the rest of the West is essentially Latin languages, and then Germany is pretty much what's left over as well. And um, so the English took over the most of the known world, it seems. This is just them. This is their peak of their empire, which they don't have anymore. We've, we've got a couple of problems with this little situation down here. Yeah, I was going to say, is that, uh, is that Southern Ireland? Is that going to be Dublin Town? That's also covered by the we, Wait, you wait there now. I have some pictures later on that are going to make you, going to make you, bring you to tears, my man. Bring you to yeah, tears. Yeah, with laughter at you. <laughs> This is though we don't talk about this, right? I, I'm sure you've noticed on this channel that this specific situation here we just don't reference. What I also like about this is how Ireland is bang in the middle of the world. Like when they make the world map, they don't start in China, they don't start in Australia, they don't start even in Europe, they start in Ireland. That's like look at it, it's right there. I'm, in the I'm pretty sure they start in London actually. If, yeah. if I'm being completely honest, if you go on uh, the UTC zero time zone, it says London, then Dublin. So we, we come first, and it's no wonder why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just more, uh, I don't know what it is. British arrogance, perhaps. So speaking- Of course it is, because we are the best. What do you expect, dude? So, so there is, like, everything I'm going to say here is actually backing up what you're saying, so I have to shut the fuck up. <laughs> so um, the, the reason why the, the English and the, 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 the Germanic languages, the, uh, the Latin languages, the French... The reason why these three are so interesting is because they're some of the richest places in the world. They're like, um, like you've got America, the wealthiest place in the world. That's an English colony, essentially. And um, mm. Ireland should be in there as well, but it seems like we're not doing that well. You have Germany flying up there, uh, England, you have Canada. These are all rocking. They're doing brilliant. The only real competitors are over here in um, East Asia. That's the only really big deal. Even Australia up there as well is another, it's under this sphere of influence. So you see that this, this language group is massive and it's again like the only real exception is Italy and that's still part of that Latin thing so there's something super interesting about this umbrella this language umbrella and what it means and um, the most interesting thing about this is how it connects to genetics now people would often say stuff like language and genetics has absolutely no relationship whatsoever that's not necessarily true because all of the languages we speak are connected to a very specific set of people but in order for me to articulate this properly i have to go really far back in history all the way down to 7000 bc you know and um, discuss how europe was shaped and how that affected european languages in some sense so i don't know james 
Can you make any sense of this? What do you think about this so far? Do you know much about haplogroups? I do know a fair bit about haplogroups. Of course, the, the most famous type of haplogroup is just a letter. So you've got the I, E, and R. Of course, R1B it seems to be the most popular one across Western Europe. Mm-hmm. So, and then when you get down into smaller letters, that, that subdivides further and further and further as you go along the historical timeline. So my, my interest here, I, I presumed R1B covered England and Ireland as well, but it looks like it's cutting off there somewhere in the middle of Europe. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that now. Well, basically what a haplogroup is, is um, I don't know, Invictus, you know much of the science behind these, but they, they're basically markers for, this is, uh, this is, these are interesting because they mark men. They talk about where men are. The, these are Y haplogroups, Y DNA. So we all have uh, two chromosomes. Uh, women are two, two types of chromosomes. I think it's X and, X and X for women. So women don't have Y chromosomes, whereas men have X and Y. You've you probably heard that before. And so yeah. if you check out what a man, a Y chromosome is, isn't a man. You can actually trace all of their men, all of the men back to uh, common ancestors. So everybody living here in I up there in the North would have a, a, a big daddy at some point far off in the past. Am I correct about that? Just checking in. No, yeah, you're 100% correct. You can also track women as well, but using mitochondrial DNA. Because when, yes. you, when, when you inherit from, when you get your DNA from your parents, you inherit the, the cell cytoplasm, including all the organelles, including the mitochondria from the mums. You can trace that back. The story of how we got mitochondria as well, God knows how many years ago, is the weirdest little evolutionary jump you'll ever see. But it's a conversation for another day. Yes, you are correct so far. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, pretty much we've got, we've got I, we've got I2A2. So this is, they had a big daddy at some point and all of these eyes would trace back to like one small family or one big daddy. And then they would have branched off at some point from J and T. And if you see all these, you've got, these are like essentially family groups. And so in this way, we can understand that these, these were men, groups of men, patriarchal groups of men. And what's interesting about, like, you know, let's, let's give the feminists their fair due here is that uh, when, the, when you have a patriarchal, a patriarchy, this is usually determines what language you're going to use. It's not, ne- it's not necessarily the women's choice in prehistory. It was all about the men come in and conquer and they establish what language is used. And then um, what is very interesting is you have this in Europe. Europe looks very interesting back here because you have I. There was a huge amount of people who had I, whoever, whatever that was. That was a group of people from the past, the pre or the proto or whatever you call them, the first Europeans. And then what happened later is, as you saw up here, these tribes, the Orwan A and the Orwan B, came into Europe and took over completely. Now, if you look at modern Europe, it's like I is marginal at this point. So I don't know, can you see what's going on here? But you've got Orwan A that started off up here in the, uh, like pretty much where Russia is, around about where Moscow is. And they swamped in and they took over all of uh, essentially Slavs. Like they are, they actually are quite conveniently marked out as the Slavic people. You have them starting here around about Poland and extending all the way back into Russia again. And then you had Orwan B. This is these dudes down here in the lower part, and they swamp all the way into uh, Western Europe that you could see them take over Germany, much of North Greece. You can see this is like modern Romania and whatnot. And then these, I know it's quite a confusing map, but you can see them take over these demographics down here. They're taking over Southern France. They rip up through France and you can see they're branching off. They're splitting up the territory, putting eye in pockets. So what we're looking at here is essentially a conquest, a giant 
uh, conquest that really changed what went on. And, and this may look all pretty and uh, nice and clean and all this, but what, what this meant for the locals, for those eye people, is that um, even down in Spain, they found that when these Or1B guys showed up, these these I-1-2s stopped completely and all the women began breeding with these, meaning that these guys executed all the men, took all the women and started a new population. And you can see them getting into Ireland and England here as well. So, um, so this, this is super important because what you're seeing here is a massive conquest by a people called the Indo-European people. And the Indo-European people have taken over so much you can see here. They take over all this, all the way down to the Levant, down to where Israel is nowadays, all over up here as well, all up into Denmark and all this. And the reason why this is important is because every language we're currently speaking is Indo-European. So these people are the source of our language. The Indo-Europeans, Latin is an Indo-European language, German is an Indo-European language, and by consequence, so is English. Um, any thoughts, gents? Any questions on the map? No, I have no questions so far. While you were speaking, I've been trying to wrestle with my dog because he keeps barking oh, and whining. Wait, this, this thing with my dog, <laughs> this is more important, I guess. If you stop stroking him, he will then yell at you to keep stroking him. So it's a vicious circle. Then if you go to grab his collar to throw him out of the room, he will, he will run away from you. So I've, I've, been, I've been in intense troubles. But no, I see. I see. No problems with what you said. So okay. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, no questions so far as well. So does it, uh, but not one question, does it link into the Yanaya culture? I believe the they were these people. Yeah, I believe. Okay. I'm not too sure now. This is something you'd probably have to go look up. Like I'm by far no expert. Right. I'm more heavy on the language stuff. But yeah. what you want to what you want to understand, like if I'm to tell the story simply, is you had this group of people, Indo-Europeans. I believe that they were the Yamnaya, as far as okay. I understand. And these people showed up with chariots. The reason why they took over is because these these poor little chaps here, the, the Europeans, these well, see, this is interesting. I can call them poor all that I want, but our ancestors are these dudes. Like so, these these are our daddies, and then our mums were probably all related to these people. <laughs> that's, uh, that's that's the bleak reality of how um, history worked beforehand. And so these guys invented chariots, and uh, I'll get to this now in a second. They stormed in and they went all the way east. They went all the way over to India as well as the Indo-Europeans. And I believe that they were the Yamna as well. Okay. So call Got me it. out. That's not true. By the way, check out abroadintheyard.com. Abroadintheyard.com. That's where they got all these maps. But yeah, these guys, the reason why they're such a big deal is because they made chariots. And they, got, they whipped horses into shape and they were on the steps. They were healthier. They were, just the, they were just the great conquerors. And they pulled off an unbelievable conquest over the entire world. This is from um, Indian literature. This is the Hindu religion. You have Krishna speaking, sorry, Krishna speaking to Arjuna. And this is a very famous scene where Arjuna is being like, why should I go to war? And Krishna is advising him what to do. This is a representative of the Indo-European people, the, the Aryans as they call them, who took over North India. And this was part of their literature. The laws of Manu was part of that as well. The Hindu caste system was part of that as well. So, so these, these were the people who did that and these were the people who brought in the language as well. And again, this is, the, this is what it would have been like. What are these locals who were, who were dominating up to that point? And then imagine this crazy bastard comes in with whatever the fuck he's doing here with a giant horse. You'd be in big trouble. And they'd move fast as well. And so what these people were doing, we've discussed in the, in the Nietzsche videos before, is that they, they, go, they take over these local populations and they establish ruling classes over them. They establish, high, as I said, a caste system. They establish a warrior elite, a, a, an intellectual elite, and then they take the lower population as slaves, largely. So what haplogroup was the, the big juicy boy over there? What, what would he be in this particular scenario? 
D- these dudes? Yeah. They they definitely are on B or or one A, one of those two. Okay, if cool. You- so they all belong to one big family, genetically yeah. related, close enough. I don't know what the generational link between haplogroups is. You can have things called SNP explosions. So the the way haplogroups work is you get things called SNP snips. Uh, something nucleotide repeats, if I remember correctly. And that's what it is. It's just little repeat, repetitive nucleotide sequences, which and then you stick, scan someone's DNA for those. And then you're like, okay, you, you, you must have inherited this. Therefore, this is your genetic lineage. I know you can have like SMP explosions and things where you can have tons appearing at the same time. But I guess, I guess they were all just the same family within a, within a yeah. small period of time, which is very interesting that, that a lot of us would technically be in the same family genetically. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's the, this is going to get crazy now. I'm only starting out, boys. I'm only starting out. Wait until you hear this. It's, it's the, probably the biggest black pill I've ever seen to realize the Irish and the English sort of are part of the same family. <laughs> so everybody here, so important to just know what James is saying. If you have that big or, that means you're part of the same general family. And this is like a split. These are like long lost brothers, if you want to look at it that way. Or one B. Or when A were part of Or at an earlier point, they split off into separate tribes. They were probably in allegiance because look how coordinated they were. They didn't attack each other. They attacked outwards. And then these guys went sort of east, largely. And you'll see that now in a sec. This is Or one A. So this is Eastern Europe. This, this literally maps perfectly to Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, the Slavs. This is the Slavic country. You look at the language pattern and it sits perfectly on top of this as well this is what i mean these things are connected it seems so you have these or1a slavs and you can see how they only really get into england they don't take the the more um eastern or western parts and all that and then these these slavs these or1a people they went all the way down to india look at the concentrations up here in north india and that was the extent and all these languages in india indo-european you can link them back to europe and i will show that later now and this is an example of Or1A. Now, what went on down here? I don't know. They seemed like some guy, some boyos went all the way down to Africa to have a bit of crack. And they've remained there in some sense. So I don't know what went on there. Don't ask me about that. That is a big anomaly. People don't, do not know what to make of that. And there's also some, some big anomalies where some Native American tribes have Or1B as well. But we're not here to cause problems and cause controversy. We're just here to talk about genetics, you know? And so, um, Native American tribes. You yep. Mean, yeah, it's crazy, dude. Like well, the fact that there's all of that ocean in the way. Yeah, well, did you know the Vikings made it over there? So uh, would it be that crazy? Actually, yeah, you're right. Didn't the Vikings technically, they founded America like as a Westerner. They arrived way before uh, Columbus and all that did. The Irish Vikings, though. (laughs) I don't think so, dude. So this is Orwin-A, and then you have the Orwin-B, and you've got this big map. These are the Indo-Europeans. They bring with them a language, and by consequence, you have this spread of the Indo-European languages. Now look at the amount of territory that is. Uh, Indo-European languages are spoken by almost 3 billion native speakers. That's literally half of the world population. That is absolutely insane. 3 billion native speakers, the largest number by far for any recognized language family. Of the 20 languages with the largest numbers of native speakers, according to Ethnologue, 12 are Indo-European, Spanish, English, Hindi, Portuguese, Bengali, Russian, German, Punjabi, Marathi, French. So you see a lot of these, Bengali, Hindi, Punjabi, Matharadi, Urdu, these are all over here. This is the, the, the Eastern branch, French, Italian, accounting for 1.7 billion native speakers. And the rest of them, English, Spanish, German, 
Italian, French, these are pretty much Western language, bar Russian, bar Russian is the exception. And as they, before people understood genetics, people actually studied languages and figured all this out. This is how accurate this stuff is. And back in the day, they studied like all of these languages in the West. And they said, these are very similar to, to the Eastern languages. And then they realized, oh my God, the Eastern languages are very similar to Iranian. And Iranian is very similar to Indian or whatever was going on down here. And they made that huge, big connection being like, whoa, there's this like unified people that was going on here as well. So what's your hypothesis between language and genetics specifically? If I understand you correctly, it sounds like um, you will have a family or a particular haplogroup that carry with them a certain language. And then as they continue to split, those languages continue to mutate over time along with the genetics. I, I'm not sure I'm saying it that way. I'm not saying the genetics necessarily are connected that way. What I, I think I'm trying to imply, and again, like I'm not trying to put forward a, a serious hypothesis here at all, but it is that these B Indo-Europeans who came up from around about Kazakhstan here, they became the ruling class and they imposed their language upon the European people and they essentially became us. And so now all of us are in some sense united by our language and that's actually... Re- relative to the genetics as well like Mm. we are indo-europeans and so and this connects us all the way over to india like it's unbelievable how huge that is and oh yeah i didn't i don't think i have any pictures of it but all of south america indo-european languages all of north america indo-european languages australia as well like this is huge the the extent of this and that's what happened with turkey on that map because it looks are they coming down via russia down to india because it looks like they sort of skipped turkey as if turkey was a real enemy well, this is interesting. What I, what I imagine, because we're looking at this, is that they probably took over all of this as well. I'm not quite sure. Like, you know, you can only speculate. But since they had chariots before everybody else, wouldn't it make sense that they probably dominated disgustingly large amounts? Like the Egyptians, for example, have this set of rulers called the Hyksos and the Hik, or the Hyksos. And Hyksos means foreign ruler. So maybe at one point, because I already we already saw how the like couple of thousand years ago 2000 bc that's 4000 years ago the orwin b was making its way into into um israel north israel canaan you know so that they were they were there maybe they got all the way down to egypt maybe they went even further maybe they went all the way down to africa like we're seeing here there they created this big map but then obviously over time as the empires fell the new empires rose up like when islam rose up with the with the arabs they took they cleansed all this stuff out and islam started to push up into europe like you can see how these demographics change a lot and turkey is very very islamic so they also all the way to afghanistan afghanistan formerly was a buddhist buddhist country and the expansion from islam into afghanistan cleansed out a lot of the buddhist heritage as well yes language Yes, yes, that's that's a great example. Like it's, yeah, like that's that's where you can study quite a lot of it. Like Iran, for example, still uses their Indo-European language, but they're 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 under uh, uh they're under they're they're Muslim. Like that's not a Indo-European religion. Like for example, Hinduism is an Indo-European religion. European paganism, they're Indo-European religions, but everything else that came in, like Christianity, is a Semitic religion. Islam is a Semitic religion that came in there as well. So it's super interesting in that sense. And this is a, an example of the Indo-European languages as they break up. And they do match nations. It was kind of crazy about it. They do match the nations very conveniently. Look at like Russia, Poland, and right where, you'd ex- right where the border is, right where the border is, you have Germany split off from Poland. That's the language group. And Norway, Sweden, Denmark. So that's super interesting. Now, this one's a bit of a, 
I, I'm not really too happy about this now at all, to be honest. Don't really like what's going on there. But anyway, well, well, let's not talk about that. And then you have the Latin groups, and then you have this little anomaly where you have Romania, which speaks a Latin language. And considering they've called themselves Romania, and that this was the Roman Empire, it makes you wonder a bit. But like, look, I'm not here to make any theories or anything like that. And my favorite, though, is the fact that Hungary here are clearly not part of this little party. Hungary don't have an Indo-European language, which is weird. And maybe they were the leftovers of these people, these I people. Yeah, same. They're the only language in Europe that is related to Finnish, as far as I'm... Whoa, well, that's yeah. interesting. I'm flying through stuff. Finnish is up here with an N. So, yeah, maybe they were, they were native languages, you know? Maybe Hungar Hungarian, Finnish, and we'll talk about the Basques now in a sec. Maybe they were native Maybe they were the they're the leftovers of what the original Europeans were like. Hard to know. Um, and so this is a, a good example of this. You have the the evolution of the pronoun I. So that is to mean me. You probably know this word ego in Latin, mm -hmm. and um, it splits out into Portuguese. Like if you if you learn any Latin languages, what's really weird the difference between English. Like we all know English, but if you want to learn uh, Portuguese or something like that or French, like French say je. Je suis, I am. And the Spanish say, Je soy. Portuguese, like, Eu soy, I believe it is. And it shows you how they're, they're related back to this. This all the way connects back to whatever the fuck this is here. I can't make sense of that at all. Eu home, or something like that. And that, that went up into Proto-Germanic, which became ek, ik. And then you have, ik turns into I, for some reason. Dutch, it's ik. German, it's ik. And then you have all these connections. They all trace back to this language group showing that we had a group of people who had an original language and now they've branched out into, like, look at this, Slavs, Germans, Latins, Greeks, Armenians, Iranians, Sanskrit, that's the, Euro, the Indian language. That's just a huge amount of the most important cultures throughout history under this umbrella. And here's an example of 100. It starts off as uh, Kutom or something like that, goes to Hundam, and then you have Hundert, Hundred, but then obviously Kuntam changes and goes into Kantum. Then you have a Cade in Irish, which is one I know, and Kant. And then obviously in Latin you have Centum. You get the word century from that. Mm -hmm. French you have cent, Italian cento. So super yeah, interesting. It always blew my mind actually how quick languages can change and evolve. Because yeah. you try and read the Canterbury Tales in the original English, you can't do it. You can pretend yeah, yeah. that you can, but you can't. Like you can probably read maybe a third of it, but then you can read Shakespeare though without too much of a difficulty. You might have to read it a little bit. And they, those two were separate. You know, they were the main English language separated by 200 years apart. And we're actually going to talk about that a bit later. Yeah. We, we went from, I mean, we spoke French for about 300 years after the, after the Norman invasion. And then we swapped back to English again. And then English has changed dramatically, but it's remained approximately static since um, about the last 300 years. The first book you'll be able to read in English as a fun fact, is Robinson Crusoe, which was 1719. Anything yes. before that, it starts getting a bit sort of sort of funky. But it's weird how quickly these things can change and people can go along with the times as well. I would hate that. It's like, no, this, use my language, not the other way around, dude. And this is what's interesting about it is that, in some sense, all, our connection to each other, I can't believe I'm saying this to an Englishman. Do you mean like, like a romantic I, connection to each other? perhaps we'll say more um family how about we keep it keep it pc for the people james no more let's not strip rip off our clothes yet but our connection to each other is um 
is actually often a consequence of ignorance in some sense. Because the Germans, and we'll come, we'll come to it now, you'll see how much the Germans and English are related. It's unbelievable. And, um, and the same with the Irish and the English. Like it's, it, they're, they're, they're literally, they are, they are the same people. Like it's, it's fundamentally there. And it's, it's often like the situation with accents. Like if you live in Dublin, you'll have a lot more of a coin than like this accent. But if you live in like Cork, you'll have something like this going on. And 400 years of two people speaking with those different accents are going to change the core words to the point that it forms into a new language, wouldn't it? Yeah. So you could start off with this and then give, give it to f- like a load of different people with different accents. And then eventually they'd morph in, in you know, into the kind of babble way that humans work into something new. And over time, you'd have situations where you know, the Latins would think that they're separate from the Germans because they have such different languages, but actually it all roots back a really long time ago and they're actually family in a strange way. Well, so let's say that, um, so people from, we'll say Surrey, where I come from, we all have the same accent. If you took a small chunk of us and put us on an island and left us for a thousand years, I can't see an, an evolutionary uh, pressure to change the accent or indeed to change the, the language. Surely it remain static over time, right? What about humor though? Like, for example, Boyoler, like, take that. Don't know where we start. Um, we start making stupid memes. Like, over time, people will come to the island and they'll be like, they all call themselves Boyo. Like, what? what? What's going on here? So maybe, maybe it'd evolve in that type of sense. Like, myth would be part of this as well. Yeah, it could do. It could do. It just looks like quite a big change. Like, the American accents vary significantly across the whole of the continent. And Australia yeah. sounds very different. Apparently, Australia comes from everyone being drunk prisoners which is my favorite story in the history of language. I love that to death. But they still speak the same language. I, I just never really wrap my head around why it would change, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure. Like, dude, I don't know either, but it makes sense to me. Like, accents are baseline different. And I imagine if you just remove them from the central influence, they will start to morph. And Like, we're talking about thousands of years, like 4,000 years, sometimes, sometimes 11,000 years. So, yeah, they, they'd really start to change. Um, fascinating nonetheless and then for example this is the biggest probably red pill of all is the connection between Irish Gaelic which is in the very fringe of um, of Europe Ireland good old Ireland and uh, they connect all the way over to India so the word Veda in Sanskrit means knowledge wisdom insight from the root word vid which means to see hence the Latin word video you might recognize that one boys The priests who practiced this form of religion in Europe were called Druids. The word Druid is composed of two words. The Dru means oak. So very famously, Druids would pick mistletoe, which is a a sacred uh, flower off the oak tree. Dru means oak, like the classical Greek Drus, and Vid, as in the aforementioned Sanskrit. So you had Druvid, Druvid, and that turned eventually into Druid. So a Druid was literally an oak seer. The oak tree was sacred to most Indo-European cultures, though not necessarily, oh, sorry, to most European cultures, though not necessarily to India. This is probably due to the obvious geographical and topologic, topographical differences, for the tree plays a central role in India culture also, right up to Buddhism of the day. And then um, to give you an example of how Gaelic has these interesting relationships to um, to the Latin languages compared to English. English, you have how are you, Dutch, you have ho gat het, German, you have wie geht's, um, uh, and then you have in French, you have come va, come va tu, Spanish, you have como estas, Gaelic, you have conas a tatu. 
And so you see the, the kind of distinct branching off of the two, which I find interesting. I much prefer the top one, to be honest. The others just look ridiculously obnoxious to me, especially <laughs> Dutch. That just was like a joke. Dutch, Dutch is by far the closest to English, bro. Like that is no, literally... Whole Godhead. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's incorrect. That's false. Just walking around calling people hoes, man. I love yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. It begins with ho. It's like you prostitutes. It's just rude. Home, yeah, no. And just a little addendum to Sanskrit there. Um, Sanskrit seems to be, has been derived as a, well, artificial language by the ruling class. And yep. it has been produced um, deliberately so. And the pronunciation is really, really similar to German. So reaching all oh, the way back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that would make sense because a lot of what we're trying to describe here, you need to understand almost in that Nietzschean context that the, these people, these, these, as we said, all the way back up here again, these locals would have been the Europeans and then these guys would have come in, but they wouldn't have bigger populations per se and they'd have to dominate, take over, establish hierarchies, like I'm repeating myself, and then rule from the situation of hierarchies and the way they'd rule is by imposing language. As Nietzsche said, and this is probably the, the most interesting one, as Nietzsche said, they had, um, they would impose language and then through their language dictate that they are the powerful and the people below them are not powerful. For example, Aryan means, or Arya, which comes from the Slavs, is related to the word Iran. Iran is Iranian, Aryan. It all relates to that stuff. And that comes from the idea of noble, to be the owner, to be the possessor. And I believe in Gaelic, I haven't looked it up, but I believe in Gaelic, um, it's the same situation where Arya means noble or upper class. And so, yeah, there, there, there would have been a, a huge connection and it would have been specifically done through the intellectual elite and the, the warrior elite in some sense. And they, they came in and they killed all their ancient dads and then imposed themselves and then became our ancestors. So that's, a, that's some ruthless stuff. Explains the English stuff. And this is, this is another unbelievable similarity between Sanskrit and um, paganism. Paganism is interesting in this sense. You have this ancient root god, which they call Deus Pater, Sky father is what it meant. So Deus is sky, Pater is father. And we go through the father thing here as well. So Zeus, Deus, Pater, you're taking the word Zeus out of that. Deus, Zeus. Uh, Jupiter, Jupiter. You're getting that as well. The Norse. Oh my God, that's mental. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Then you have Tyr. Tyr is coming from, I believe, the te- Deus, Teus, something like that. He probably evolved into Tyr, as I believe. Tyr was the original father of the Norse pantheon. Then Odin kind of bullied him out a bit. Uh, the Norse pantheon is interesting because it had Tyr and Odin related together. And um, Dagda was the same for the Irish. That's Dagda there with his fucking shtick. Like, look at that. This this makes Englishmen have nightmares. Look at this here. Look at that. He looks yeah. like a character from that shitty movie, Nomeo and Juliet. Don't call it a shitty movie. <laughs> Sherlock Gnomes. Don't say that about Dagda. Dagda's a beast. Look at him there. Look at that. I have a question, actually. This is, this is really fascinating. How do they know he was originally called Deus Peter? Because I imagine back then it wouldn't be written, right? It would be just spoken. I'm actually think they they discovered it through implication. So they discovered Jupiter, obviously Skyfather and Zeus, and then they would have checked the Slavs, and all of these pantheons would have the same structure. Like this is just the the, the daddy god. They have um, a very famous one is uh, the, the Romans had Jupiter. They also had Terra Mater. Terra Mater is related to the idea of Mother Nature. It's where we get the words matter from and material. You know, the the Earth, and so. Um, 
they they have very similar patterns all across the world as well in the same sense like they have a, a mother goddess who represents mother nature yes this is what it is terra mater is um, the roman for mother earth and then over all the way over in sanskrit you have maya which is the 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 representation of the goddess of the world the goddess of materialism maya relates to the idea of matter so closely like i, I think that's hard to deny and then um, they, they did this, they do it with all the languages and eventually they come up with a sort of assumed pantheon, I believe. Okay, because it makes sense that the spelling and the pronunciation would change if it was an orally transmitted language. I can't see if it was written down. Yeah, and you, yeah. had, you had like a Rosetta Stone of all languages, why that would necessarily change. This, this does beg the question as to how gods and things change and, and evolve, because I doubt a person in Greece would look at an Irishman and go, well, our gods are basically the same thing, right? Well, this is what the Romans were doing, dude. They had the, the, the when the Romans started to conquer the North, they tried to compare the Northern gods to their gods. So they would say the Gauls worship Dispater, for example. Dispater is another great example of that. Dispater is another version of Deus Pater. Mm. This was the undergod. Jupiter was the overgod. So you can see it, it obviously gets weird and complicated over time. As I said, these people are forgetful. They lose touch with their roots because they're not writing it down. Um, but they, they, the Romans would go over to North Britain. They'd, they'd meet the Norths and then they'd ask them, like, how does your gods work? And then they'd explain it. They believed that the Germans worshipped Odin because by the time, sorry, Mercury, because at the time they got there, Odin was the main dude, and Odin was a little bit different than this dude. The Gauls were well, the same. They had Luke. I would think that the meaning would also change uh, uh, via topography and climate. When you have a very different uh, climate that you're living in, your perception of what the sky father is, who rules the sky, and whatever the surrounding you would change then proceedingly as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes your emphasis can change as well. Like, um, And this is also the evolution of religion, because a lot of like like the way in Christianity, you begin with God as in Yahweh, and then eventually you get the Messiah as in Christ. Um, you would have you would have like Dagda in the Irish mythology, but Dagda actually gets supplanted by his this sort of glorious Messiah son, who is uh, Lug, and Lug is is Odin pretty much. Lug appears in Gaulish literature as well, and there's another one, Gael, Gaul. Like, is there much of a difference in that? And uh, so yeah, this this stuff is fascinating. So how then, much of the how much of the standard Greek Roman pantheon? It's obviously they're basically the same pantheon. How much of that is um, is conserved across the world? Uh, I I can't say I'm no expert in that sense, but I do know that there's a an immense amount enough to make them to make us understand that they were definitely related. Um, so take take something like the uh, Tuatha Dé Danann, or however you pronounce it in Irish. Is that a a permutation of another myth from another country? Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be sourced in the original. It's the same with the language here. You would have had an original myth. And I can even go up and look it up because they have a set of deities. What they have is they have the, the god, the sky father. They have the earth mother. They have the warring um, brothers. That's what they have. And then they have the, the, the princess of the dawn. And I believe they have a horse god. So obviously the horse god is related to the chariot. And then mm. you, you look around and most of those show up. Like the Greeks, for example, have Eos, or that could be the Romans. Yeah, the Romans have Aurora. You'll know that from Aurora Bo Bolialis. And that's um, mm -hmm. goddess of the dawn. And then I, I believe the, the Irish have something similar. So I just, it doesn't come to mind. And I'm sure the Indians have something like that. Mm. And so it's all rooted. And again, it, it's there in the language. You have Pitta, father. So Pitta is the Sanskrit for dad, father, the English. This is Irish, Ahar. 
This is, um, I believe, Greek and Roman. Pater, Pater. And then you have Austoish, uh, you have Vathor. And, uh, Darth Vater, yes. Da- and then Darth Vader, there's a good example. Yeah. Deus Pater, Darth Vader. Like I've always found that interesting. Um, and then in German, you even see how it gets moved across the, the social roles to, to indicate that these were, in some sense, tied all together. And the way in, in English we call priests fathers as well, the Germans actually call them their Pfarrer. Well, Invictus can correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong. And then obviously the infamous their Fuhr as well. So you have Vater, <laughs> der Pfarrer, der Fuhr. It's all, it's all related Vater, to that. Vater, der Pfarrer, der Fuhrer. Say this one again, the middle one. Vater, der Pfarrer. Fahar, Fahar. Did you say the Vater? <laughs> Vater, der Pfarrer, der Fuhrer. Der Pfarrer, der German pronunciation. Tough, bro. I will work on that. That's good, man. It's good. Sehr gut, sehr gut. Toll, toll, mein, mein guten Freunden. Da, danke schön, mein Freund. Um, ich, mein Deutsch ist sehr schlecht, aber ich bin capable of Sprachen Deutsch. <laughs> Guys, I'm not sure if you're related with that pronunciation. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> du, du bist shit at Deutsch. <laughs> du, bist, du bist British, so de- therefore du bist shit. Yeah, there du you bist go. Right, carry on. These, these are some of the worst jogs ever. Like the Germans. <laughs> Yeah, it's just do best insert English insult here. This this is literally the the biggest black pill I've ever seen. This is this is just this destroys me in some sense because it's this is as we spoke before. You have everybody united as this original big daddy who was or daddy at some point, and then or daddy split up into or daddy's brother and or daddy's other brother or one A or one B. And then these guys, Or1A, stormed all the way over here into to Western Europe. And then Or1A floated around here and went down to India. And then it seems like one specific group went and took over England, Ireland, and France. And this was the Or-L21. And you can trace all of us back to this. Look at, look at the Irish here. Unbelievably large amounts. This is essentially the Irish haplogroup. group. Now, I, was, I actually really enjoyed finding this out, but then I discovered that... Uh, well, we, we share quite a lot with these guys over here, specifically the Norths. So I've spent the last couple of times making fun of the poor old Norths. And then I got quite red pill that it turns out that I am a North. And that, yeah, I think you're the exact same color to like Manchester area, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, wait until you see later, dude. There's something so funny. Um, so you've got the Scots, you've got the Welsh, you've got the, 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 the French. And what's super interesting about the oh there you go the Norths mate. <laughs> so this is the I'll Irish. Sooner Obiro and a large portion of fucking chips, please, lass. Go on there, lass. Thank you very much. Um, so this is this is us. So Invictus is going to be like, what the fuck are these dudes talking about? This is this is us kind of geeking out on the Scots Gales. The best way you could understand this probably is since the Romans took over France, they probably pushed the native Gauls into the corner. And this is what was left of them. And so in some sense, this could be the Celtic race, as people call them. Because the Celts were interesting in um, the Celts. S- seems like they started around about here, but they got pushed into the fringes, you know? Hmm. So um, this, this seems like this is who it is. So people talk about Celts. This is it. You've got the Welsh, the Irish, and they're very concentrated in people who speak um, Gaelic languages. And what unites them is a very interesting word. These people in France, they live in Brittany. Brittany, you see it there. Ah, Super interesting. Britannia. 
Britannia, because what do you call the feckin' Brits? What do you call them? What do you call the feckin' Brits? You call them the Brits, because the, the natives were Britons. And then in, uh, in Ireland, you had the Breton laws. This was the, the law before Anglo-Saxon law came in. And uh, this has become super important because these were the natives. And what happened is this, this original, so this is where um, live by the sword, die by the sword happens. Originally, these or people storm in, take over this huge demographic. They control England. They control Ireland. These are probably the Druids. And the, the leftover language we have is the Gaelic language. And the Stonehenge was known as the center of this and all that. And then these guys got comfortable. And then what happened then is you had the feckin' Danish, Anglo-Saxons, and the Frisians fly in and take over England and start to and start to bully them. So you have their their long-lost cousins. These are all Or Haplo group as well. They come in and they invade the Or Haplo group and took over. So don't think this is a nice story where it's like, oh, the Or, the Indo-Europeans take over and rule the world. It's like the Indo-Europeans took over and then their brothers came in from behind them and took them over. And that's pretty much how things started to work. And so uh, this is where you start getting into the history of English. And this is where things start becoming interesting in terms of language, because you have the ancient Britons who would have had a very similar language to the ancient Irish. And then it starts to get influenced by the English, the Anglo-Saxons. The English start to come in and impose a real Germanic language upon them. And this is, uh, Invictus brought up the Frisians. So this is where it starts to, to get involved. So yeah, James, how does that feel? What does that, what does that feel like to see your nation get invaded? Well, this was long before me anyway. And you, you keep forgetting this. You keep forgetting this. We're going to keep reminding you. I am mostly Irish by blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that means you're mostly Britain. Uh, yes, yes, it would be. I don't, it, it gets dodgy because you then can't trace specifically where people come from. We, you're basing things essentially on surnames that far back. But, uh, but yeah, so I would technically be mostly North as well. And it, it is the most depressing thing I've ever come across in my entire life. This is just this is just a show of blackness. We've got a we've got a Germanic though in the other corner, so we just gotta be careful. Um, and this is what's interesting is that uh, we talked about this in the Nietzsche video is that this this specific demographic of people from around about North Germany here, um, this was the Franks. They became the people who created the French nation. This is where they get their name from. The Frisians were the Dutch who went over and and this is why Dutch and English are so related. And then the Saxons, obviously, are German, Angles, Jutes. So it's all Danish, German, Dutch, French. It's all around the same place. So they um, took over. And this is the how Britain changed, which is super interesting. You had Hibernia. This is during Roman times. And then you had the Roman implication. But what's super interesting is the Romans didn't leave a Latin language. They, they pretty much only really left Christianity. And they established their conquered. They barely even left their DNA as well. And this was... Uh, how Britain looked. You had the native Britons and then you had the, the, the Romans come in and that was pretty, pretty brief. That was just part of the empire and they didn't really leave much of a trace at all. But then once they left, then you start getting the, the invasions from the, the Danish, from, the, from the, the Norths, the true Norths. And then of course you have the Vikings as well. And we're going to talk about this a little bit, how the Vikings affected everything. So um, like over here in Ireland, you see you have the Britain, the, the natives, and then they're getting conquered by the Vikings as well. But uh, let's talk about a little bit about this. What it shows about the UK population is that many local communities have stayed put for almost 1.5 thousand years. 1.5 thousand years. There you go. Many for longer. And that their strong sense of regional identity was their birthplace has deepened their DNA. 
This is most strikingly seen in the genetic split between people living in modern Cornwall and Devon, where the division lies exactly along the county border along the River Tamar. The people living on either side of the river have a different DNA. So again, there's something amazingly specific about these little groups of DNA, and that obviously maps up to language in an interesting way. The large, largest genetic grouping, particularly in southern and central England, coincide with the territories of the invading Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, as we just showed. Um, the smaller genetic groups in Wales, north of England, tally with the strongholds of ancient Britons, such as the Kingdom of Elmets and what is now West Yorkshire. So it seems like these people, despite being part of a larger family, are most definitely part of a different versions of that family. There are more genetic differences between North and South Wales than between Kent and Scotland. There is more similarities between people in the north of England and Scotland than people in the south of England. Well, there's a surprise. That, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't realize that until you'd, uh, you'd red-pilled me, colloquially speaking, of course, on that a little while ago. And then I was in the north and I was like, these, these people, they aren't my people. I just don't feel, it, feel at home here. It is. It's quite, it's quite a Celtic vibe, actually, you get from, from northerners, just the way they sort of are. It just, it, it, you can't put your finger on it because it's intangible, but it's just their general cadence the general disposition, the way they speak, stuff like that. It's weird. And um, there is no single Celtic genetic group. The Celtic parts of the UK are among the most different from each other genetically. Now, that's also super interesting because that implies that it was a massive Celtic empire. Because many, the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks are actually a very, very tightly related, I'd imagine, because they all came from quite a small portion of tribes. Whereas the Celts were part of this massive ancient kingdom that just got destroyed by these invaders. And so that's super interesting. The Anglo-Saxons invaders tended to intermarry rather than replace the existing um, population. So again, they come in with this hierarchy, they put themselves on top and then they start to marry with it. The Vikings did that even more strict as the Roman, the Romans came in, put in a hierarchy and didn't intermarry. The Vikings did the same thing. It seems like they didn't really intermarry that much at all because there's no large genetic signature, or maybe there just wasn't that many of them. Maybe the Vikings sort of turned into the royals, as we understand them now, because I guess you can trace a lot of the royalty back to those Northmen invading. And that's a super interesting... We'll start talking about that, the, the, the history of the royals. Um, only Orkney residents found out significant levels of Viking DNA, a quarter of the DNA coming from Norway. And so, yeah, they're, they're able to trace people back to when they showed up and all that stuff. Mm. So this is why we get the, the diverse look in England. and uh, Sweetest whammon. The, the gorgeous, you have the gorgeous uh, Southern Anglers, you have these random redheads that are always showing up, and then you have the, the more darker features on what I only consider are probably the natives. But it seems like they do trace back to a similar tribe. Wait, 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 go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. So the one on the left it would be a different uh, clade originally to the other two. I'd imagine so. This is um, Catherine Zeta Jones. She's uh, Welsh, and this is Rosie. She's from London. She's so there's no London. other. So there's no other, say, uh, Latino blood or something to sort of the darker the skin pigment on the girl on the left. Uh, no, no, I believe she's Welsh. Like she could. Like I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't. Yeah, looked. I was going to say because that actually surprises me. I presumed people from the, from this part of the world wouldn't have any evolutionary stimulus to have that much mel melanin right in their skin. Oh, no, yeah, she could. She, she should definitely have a bit of admixture. But I know she's Welsh, and I think it illustrates the example. Well, like, you do get some darker-skinned people in Ireland as well, which are kind of weirdly looking. Like, even me, if I got a bit of a tan, I'd, like, look more Spanish. People often say I'm Spanish, for example. But I'm pure-blood pure blood Irish boy, like, pure. <laughs> I bet you got it a had, it had the same happening when I'm tanned that people approach me 
uh, thinking I was Spanish, but I'm yeah, not. yeah, that, yeah, th- and that is interesting because where, how does that, where does that come from? And I've noticed this about, I guess you could describe this as the the relationship or the difference between, like maybe I don't know, this is just some fucking Stefan theory, like Boyo theory here, but maybe you have a uh, these eyes may have been paler than these whoever these ore people were because they're probably i've known because they're further above the equator yeah yeah so i've noticed that um for example in germany you meet some germans who like are, are tan they they sort of have that tanned look about them whereas then you meet irish people and they're like literally milk white and it, it makes you mm. wonder and the tan tend to have blonde features as well which is weird whereas the irish would have very dark features irish would have dark hair uh, dark eyes but they'd be like literally milk white pale whereas then you'd meet the yeah you'd meet the, some of those germans you'd meet and they'd, they'd like have blonde hair blue eyes but they'd be more tanned naturally which is very strange um and so this is the invasion of the the north the norths the, the 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 even more dangerous norths and this is where we start getting into how the language started to blend up together these vikings established like so you had this family up here and they started to raid into the settled parts of europe and they established essentially the royal families of england or of england which took over all of ireland and these people took over most of europe as well which is super interesting i think the dna bears that out saxons regained control of english in 1042 but they would lose power to another group of vikings attacking from normandy in france normandy is land of the northmen and so these uh, normans would uh, invade england at some point and these Normans were speaking French because they're in France and they would invade England, take over England and establish a French language ruling over England, which is marked in the language to this very day. Let's talk a little bit about Ireland to again show this picture. This is Ireland, land held by the Normans. So the, the Ireland got invaded. So I think we were talking, this is another black pill. Like I often say the English are nasty, but it turns out that the Irish have quite a large influenced by these northern vikings as well these northmen took over quite a lot of us so it doesn't seem like we're necessarily not guilty here the o'neills if you ever meet an o'neill person they're from the native irish ruling family they were probably the or l21 those first that first haplogroup group that stormed in took over ireland established a gaelic tribe this is their capital it's known as tara and and what's interesting about tara is it was made out of wood mainly and that was the center of Ireland. That was right about here. But when the Norths came in, they didn't respect it because it was someone else's capital. And also they liked ocean. And so the capital moved to Dublin. And Dublin was originally a Viking slave city where they took the native Irish and sold them off <laughs> in their thing. And now what's different and what's interesting and what's important to understand is like, why did this happen? Well, the chariots came in and took over all of Europe the first time. And then what happened is the Vikings came in and they were doing something a lot different than building nice little ring forts. Vikings are coming in and building fucking castles, man. Vikings were like, right, you like stone, do you? Is that, is that all? We'd be running up with sticks like, and be like, get out of here, you Vikings. And they'd be in these big stone um, monstrosities that we couldn't take over. So Ireland is littered with these. And what's interesting is that all, m- most of the main castles are in Viking settlements. Limerick, Cashel, um, Cork, Dublin. I believe Athlone has one so, as well. So were those, were those castles, sorry, from the specifically Vikings or from the Normans? Uh, I'd say the Normans, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I was going to not... say, because that's, um, that's what they did when they came over here. Loads of castles were built by William Normandy and his, and his sons and his ilk 
So I, I'm not sure if the original Vikings, like Canute the Great, actually built castles. I'm not familiar with that. But yeah, the Normans, they seem to like that quite a lot. You had all that, that um, like Gothic architecture and stuff like that dates yeah. around to that time. I think, um, and this is interesting to try to figure out how the royal family in Europe came about, because the royal family, we're speaking about genetics, were all related. And at some point, for example, the people ruling England were no longer British. They were no longer even Anglo-Saxon Germans. They were fucking French, man. They would have had, they would have had a bit. If you've traced, I, I find this fascinating. I love stuff like family trees. If you trace the bloodline back of um, Elizabeth II now, I think she goes back to uh, James I, I think, directly. But then if you trace it up to around a thousand years ago, there is a piece of Alfred the Great, an Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. But, but it is, you're right, it is mostly Norman, which is very upsetting. Yeah, and that's super interesting because it, it does imply, and this is, again, the problem with nationalism. Like, we'll talk about that now in a bit, but it does imply that what happened at some point is these people, like the way you had those people in the Russian steppes, they developed a unique technology, a powerful culture, and then this culture stormed in and took over all of Europe, and then eventually it dissipated. The energy kind of fizzled out. And then what happened is, over time, the Romans, a, a subcloud of them, built up a lot of power, burst out, took over loads of Europe, and then they dissipated and fizzled out. And then while that happened, a huge amount of energy swelled up here in North Germany, and then they burst out and took over England, and then it dissipated and fizzled out. And then again, you had the Northmen up here build up a huge amount of energy, a, a strong invasion culture. They burst out, they run around, they take over all of Europe all of Western Europe and they establish a royal elite over them and then eventually they fizzle out. Like, do we have any royal families anymore? Not really. It's all fizzled out for something new. And so this is um, showing how these things would work. They're, they're sort of like waves coming and going and they start actually quite small and through invasions, this is how you, you get these super hierarchies with like small families ruling the top of them. And usually like, as we'll see, the royal family in Spain is related to the royal family in in Germany, which is related to the royal family in England. And it turns out that these massive swaths of populations were ruled by a single bloodline in some sense. And people are like, conspiracy, but it's like, nah, man, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Mm. And so this is my favorite picture of all. James, I want you to focus so specific. I want read that out, James. Just fucking read that out for me. Read that out. <laughs> uh, kingdom of Dublin. And where is the Kingdom of Dublin for people in the podcast, James? Tell them where the Kingdom of Dublin is. It's in North England. It's in North, so the Kingdom of Dublin is in England. You see that? No, 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 no. North England. I, look, that's the, as much as I'm granting you. The, on the British island, there is a kingdom known as Dublin. Which Dublin? What, where's Dublin, the capital of Ireland? Or it's, <laughs> James? Dude, 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 we the North is where we keep the smelly people. So James, we probably like, just humoured you and allowed you to have a kingdom amongst the smelly people. I don't think I asked for your opinion, James. I asked you to read the facts, James. Could you read the facts for me? Where is the kingdom of Dublin originated. Where is Dublin? What is Dublin? What, what, what comes to mind when you think Dublin? What's the first thing? That, what's the location? That uh, the first thing that comes to mind is a pint of Guinness, but the location is Eastern Ireland. Oh, in Ireland. And why, why then do we have a kingdom on the English? What, what is this? Does this suggest that we, we, we conquered England? Is that what it's, is that what it's saying? Yeah. No, it doesn't look like you conquered England. Oh, well, like, maybe. I mean, I, mean, no, I mean, take a look at this. Danglaw next to it where the Vikings were is like, that's at least three, four times bigger. Well, you, how you, about this? Where are you right now, James? Where are you right now? <laughs> Actually, I'm right there. Literally, look, right there. <laughs> are, you, are you by any chance in Manchester, yeah? Yes, yes, I am. 
is there any chance that Manchester is in the ancient kingdom of Dublin? Well, it's not in the ancient kingdom of Dublin, is it? It's on the land where there once was a kingdom of Dublin. I don't want to get wrapped up in semantics here. I want you to just look at the facts. Like, are, are you right now in the kingdom of Dublin or not? <laughs> yes. Will that make you happy? Yes. So, so the Irish, the Irish took over England, but the the most specifically the Norse took over Ireland and then the Norths took over England, England. And there was one point, this is a super interesting story. There was one point where the, the, the North family in Ireland was about to invade England and they had a storm destroyed their invasion fleet. And then that led to a series of events that caused um, an Irish king to betray the Irish by inviting an English king to come over or like a, an English Norse king to come over. And that's when the Royal Crown of England took over Ireland for the first time. And that's, we never, we never threw it off since till about 80 years ago in all that sense. So it, it's super interesting how a lot of our political history was dominated by not native Britons and not even Anglo-Saxons, but by these North ruling people who came in about a thousand years ago and established the, the ruling class. And these were the Vikings largely. Can you show the grave once again? I think two this slides. One? Yes, it said in Ireland as well. All of these. Yes, they're. Yes. Oh, that's interesting because those graves they have been found. Um, it's probably like it's from the Viking graves, right? Uh, which one? Found, is that? This one here. Yes, the on the down left corner. The bottom left is actually from the native uh, uh, Celts, I guess you could call them. They're ring forts, so there's a load of those all over Ireland, and that oh, was our that was our capital in Tara. So right in the middle of Ireland, this is just like a load of fields in the middle of Ireland. But actually, back in the day, this family, the O'Neills, and people like them, ruled Ireland from this position. This was the giant capital king. This is the big palace. Uh, okay. And then the Vikings came in and they stopped doing that and they started establishing it. But there's stuff like this all over Europe. And yeah. Over That's what I was hinting at because they're similar uh, at the East Sea, at the Eastern Sea in Europe all around there, um, and stretching all the way through the to ukraine yes yes loads of them it's crazy man it's crazy um god i just love this picture man i don't know what it is <laughs> are you talking about the one on the left or the right which the this this so thing... so, so the the nice woman who's clearly meant to be a beautiful woman from the kingdom of dublin or no she's, she's a viking woman actually from the tv show yeah no i mean the one on the left dude 100 percent. like forget that this no wow I'd, yeah, even though my, it's uh, Norse and not actually Irish. <laughs> we'll let it slide, I guess, so that you don't... All, all my inferiority complexes just vanish when I see that, man. It's, just it's, like, it's worse <laughs> when I get those, those drunk messages from you all the time, spiraling about restoring the kingdom of Dublin. It's like, dude, calm down. Go home to your parents. I actually didn't, I didn't realize we had this till I found this. And now I'm like, well, now we have political impetus to be like, we must take the kingdom of Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I'd, I'd be careful. I just, I just keep an eye on me. That's all I'm going to say. Just watch very closely. I'm going like, to do some intense research on this as you speak. Um, so, but before you do some intense research, here is a de the demographics of the British people and the Irish people. And what's interesting is, in some sense, you could call the British people the Irish people as well. That is just, I, I'm going to get murdered here for saying that. But the, the Gauls, the Celts, they, they were all native. And you can see, look at this, the R1B haplogroup is dominant. That R1B L21, hugely dominant all over England. 
And obviously you see this R1B. So it's again, it's a little chunk that comes off. R1B S21 is the German influence. This is the Ingles, the Angles, whatever you want to call them. This is where they come from. And so you see this is the invading tribe later. And uh, again, as you can see, these people stayed, their genetic imprint stayed, but stuff like the Vikings barely stayed at all. And as we were saying earlier, you've got these I people. There's actually still traces of them left. And it looks like most of those people are actually centralized around um, like sort of the border between England and Scotland and in Northern Ireland. But they're, they're still there and, and to a large extent. And uh, these ones, like, let's just not get into that. That's too complicated. But mm-hmm. yeah, you can see the, the, how it's broken up and how, how the migrations affected it. And of course, the language is a big thing. Ireland has Gaelic, and that's probably the original language that was spoken all over here. Now they speak English because, again, the ruling class, even though it may be smaller, comes in, establishes domination, forces the language on the people. And so you have, uh, now we all speak English, but English is, of course, taken over by the French people. And here's an example of the ruling class, which is super interesting, the the royals. According to the Stuarts, Stuart DNA project, the House of Stuart, who ruled Scotland from 1371, and then also England and Ireland from 1603 until 1707. Yeah, that'd be James I. Is his name James, yeah? Yeah, James I would be uh, the old 1603 boy. Well, what's interesting is he's R1B L21. So he's part of this one. Coming cool, from- okay. Now, th- this becomes extremely, extremely interesting because as I said before, this is complicated, so I'll fly back between slides. But Russia is largely R1A. Russia is, you've got that big R1A, the slabs and all that. But it turns out that the last king of Russia was part of R1B. That's Tsar Nicholas, the man who was killed by the communists. The Bolsheviks came in and shot him all. And they found his grave and his children's grave and they tested it. And it shows that he had R1B. And his, his, his mother was uh, T, T2 T two or whatever that is. But so he was part of the same family as the House of Stuart, despite being deep in R1A territory. And that's interesting. That is very, very strange because that's suggesting the Western European ruling family were uh, controlling everything. And so this parental lineage of the Russians came from the house of Oldenburg, which includes all the kings of Denmark, although it has not come up before, since Christian I, as well as several kings of Norway, Sweden, and Greece, and the current heirs to the British throne. So the, the king of Russia, the last king of Russia related to the British throne, and it all stems back to this same place where that last burst of energy came out of, which was the, the Vikings, the Northmen. Fascinating stuff. And then you can check out the Habsburg family. These people ruled Spain and Hungary. They are R1B as well. Super interesting. And King of the Romans, Switzerland, the Holy Roman Empire, all this stuff as well. Austria, Hungary, Spain, Naples, Tuscany, Parma, Milan. So you've got all of this covered. And it seems like the royal family of Europe was largely, until it fell, was largely a R1B phenomenon. And it seemed like it was coming out of a very specific place. And um, now the reason why this didn't work out is because I, obviously these people intuitively knew it, but they did silly stuff like uh, interbreed so much that they became sick. So this is a case of the Spanish Hasbergs that uh, began interbreeding so much that eventually they had one son who was just essentially, let's just say he wasn't too mentally sharp. And uh, he, ended up, <laughs> he ended up being the final member of that family. 
because the interbreeding was so intense and uh, that ended up growing the, the line. Apparently at one point, like these last couple of people had something like 10 or 17 sons and daughters and all of them died or they were born in, invalid or something like that. Yeah, he looks, uh, he does look like his mom and dad are brother and sister. I don't know if anyone can see that on the stream, but he's got like a protruding cheek. His eyes are like permanently cross-eyed, it looks like. <laughs> not great, man. It's not great. Yeah, they're all first cousins. That's really bad. Yeah. Like there yeah. seems to be reading robots supposed to behave. Uh, there seems to be a sweet spot with third cousins. Not yeah. making any suggestions here, but... Did you say a sweet spot is third cousin? <laughs> yeah. If you go yeah. for it, you know, like keep some distance. Because you then proceed to uh, proceed like six fifty six point five percentage of your DNA into the next generation if it's third cousin. Yeah, yeah that's not pretty safe to be honest. Because the the problem is inbreeding can be a really good thing technically. Oh, really, James? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get certain dogs. Obviously, it's like you'll pick dogs with the best traits, and they'll be from the same families, and you breed them, and that's how you get different breeds of dog. But it also it doesn't just amplify good traits; it also amplifies bad traits. And if you look at the people at the very top of the tree, if you look at Joanna of Castile, she doesn't exactly look like the brightest button, does she? <laughs> Especially Philip the First as well. He's like he looks like a sort of a moody gamer who doesn't want to pose for the photo. He wants to go play some hat. All right, that's true. Yeah. Look at that hair, man! Imagine having hair like that. <laughs> What's wrong with his face? I mean, Ferdinand the First looks pretty cool, but Charles the Fifth. Yeah. Um, yeah, and these these may may have been Vikings themselves, and um, the Habsburgs, because the Habsburg does not sound like Spanish, does it at all? Habsburg, like where does that remind you of? It reminds you more of, of Invictus's territory. Yeah, and so um, and so it seems like yeah, they had that going, and then of course they were like, well, we've got to preserve this because they are very conscious of the blood thing. They were so conscious of it that they managed to get the ruling elite in Russia to be the same people as the ruling elite in England. But of course, that does have its downsides where they end up, uh, they end up violating Invictus's rule there where they go maybe a little bit inside of the whole third cousin room. They say, oh, look, uncle and niece or uh, first cousins, uncle and niece. So, yeah, they do get they do get uglier as time goes on. Like <laughs> Philip the Fourth's mustache. <laughs> Where's Philip the Fourth there? He's <laughs> yeah. it's just not handsome. That's, that's the thing. I know. Yeah. I'm enjoying yeah, that, this. I'm enjoying laughing can, at semi-disabled people. It's very fun. That, that can show you how um, it's all right when it's a ruling class. You're like, can't you? Kind of you had everything, dudes, and all you didn't, all you had to do was not, you know, not your your niece or something like that. <laughs> they, all, they all they all somehow managed to consistently do the same mistake, and then look look what happens. They get Charles the <laughs> second. It was like, well, look, you reap what you sow, guys. <laughs> I go, go, you, know, you have that potent energy at the start and then it, it kind of pitters out, kind of fades out. And um, people are very conscious of it. And it's, it's probably, it's, maybe it's harder than we think. <laughs> maybe it's harder than we think. Not <laughs> I, I just looked up Charles II. He, he's uglier, if you actually zoom in on the picture. Apparently his nickname was The Bewitched. And it, it, it literally says he's best remembered for being retarded. <laughs> be the result of inbreeding. <laughs> So there you go, people. So uh, don't think this was some type of like, oh, yay, where the Indo-Europeans rerule the world. We're sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, just like with the inbreeding going on here. Like this is, this is, uh, this is some bad stuff. So, so uh, everybody's got their flaws, people. Everybody's got their flaws. I mean, can, can I, I'm going to screen share for a second. Just, 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 just one second. You, you, you've got to uh, you, actually, no, don't actually, because it means you've got to unscreen share and then it will reveal your secret identity. It was if you're going to be a zoomed in picture of Charles II's face. 
okay. that really amused me. Um, so yes, and then so this is where we start getting into the linguistics. Phrasal verbs. I've uh, a load of people I teach English to, and phrasal verbs are super weird. Like, what the hell is a phrasal verb? For example, um, Invictus, you probably came up against this. Like the verb give. Mm-hmm. Very, very obvious. Like, give me that. <laughs> give me that. <laughs> and um, when someone says to you, give up. Oh, I give up. I don't want to play anymore. You're kind of thinking to yourself, like, give up. What? Oh, what? What do you want me to give? No, no, it's give up. It's like quit. So why are these two things related in that type of sense? And it seems like, again, we have that uh, often quite Latin-influenced verbs. Many of the verbs in English are Latin, coming from the French. Um, but they get corrupted by this, this uh, Dutch and German pattern because you find it in Dutch and German rarely. This is a very, very English thing, though. In Dutch, you have uh, the lampe an stecken. To light the lamp becomes ich steck the lamp an. I light the lamp on, similar in German. Das Licht ein schalten. To switch on the light becomes ich schalte das Licht ein. I switch the light on. And so that's very rare to get that whole switch on, uh, light on give up that doesn't happen really in latin languages at all and it freaks latin people out when they come to it and so you have that very very unique blend and why did that happen and so so for example when i'm teaching people i'm i'm usually sitting down with them and saying you've got to actually because they they usually have so much language from their native because there's very very many latin speakers like brazilians portuguese whatever they they usually have plenty of these verbs but they can't use phrasal verbs at all so i'm like all right sit down Get these, get every verb you use and try to turn it into a phrasal verb because English has enough of them. English has, I think, thousands of these. And they find that very difficult. But that's how natives speak usually. We, we usually use a, quite a phrasal verb loaded, sometimes up to like 60 to 80% of our verbs are phrasal verbs. So, uh, yeah. And then why all this pulled together, why we have this unity to bring this to a close is in, in the, the personage of Shakespeare is where you really get a lot of it. So you, mean, uh, about- you mean Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford? Yes, quite. Yes, a member of that. Uh, someone's, someone's cousin, I'm sure. Or Francis Bacon. Just not, so, uh, not William Shakespeare. In the 17th century, just as, like, so all of this stuff had went on. All of this conquest. You had the Britons, the native Gauls, the native Celts, the, na- the first Orwambees. Then you had the, the Anglo-Saxons. And then you had the, finally the last Orwambees, the Vikings come in. And these guys, the Normans, then brought in the French. And at that point, you had the English, or is this very, I guess you could say, um, this cake, to use Invictus's metaphor earlier, this cake of people put in, and you have several layers to it. And uh, this became a super, super big problem because you had the, the native Brits, as we were saying, call it, like, who were farming, calling the animals like Koo and Hun, like their germ, German ancestors. But then you had the upper class calling the food they ate like pork. And, uh, and poultry and uh, beef. And so they had that situation where they needed to standardize the language. And so when you got the, in 1755, when we got a dictionary of the English language, that's when English started to get very consolidated. And that was around about the same time Shakespeare was knocking about. So therefore Shakespeare had a huge influence in the British language and the English language. And that's why before the hundred years, as James was saying, Chaucer is practically impossible to read. Because he was, he was in during a time when they hadn't standardized the language, where Shakespeare was. And so that's when we can look back to that point and all of the, the grammar is in place. 
all of the con- the concept of the English language is there. And that was around about the same time that John Dee and all them decided to make the British Empire. And so um, all of it stems back to this point. And it is super interesting because this, these, these series of decisions created the English language as we know it today. And that is the language that now rules the world to a large extent. So in some sense, what these people, the decisions they were making have dictated how billions of people think across the world and interact. And that I find amazing. And it all ties back to the genetics as well. Um, the 17th century port towns and their forms of speech gained influence over the old country towns. From around about the 1690 onwards, England experienced a new period of internal peace and relative stability, which encouraged the arts and literature. And that's where Shakespeare showed up. Um, yes, and so 200 years earlier, everything was really, really hard. And so a few examples of this is the word champion. From Macbeth, you get put rancors in the vessel of my peace only for them and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man to make them kings, the seed of Banco kings, rather than so come fate into the list and champion me to the utterance. Who's there? That is the word champion, to win, a warrior, to, to champion an idea. And this actually comes from the French. You might have heard the region of Champagne. I'm sure it's related to that. And we think of popping a bottle for victory with Champagne. And uh, I believe that the French have a word called champion as well. Shakespeare understood French. He moved a lot of words into English that way. Um, Academe, accessible, accommodation, addiction, admirable, aerial, airless, amazement, anchovy, archvillain, auspicious, bachelorship, barefaced, baseless, batty, birthplace, blackfaced. So before this is... uh... Bedroom. wouldn't have had the word champion in English. It was originally a French word and then Shakespeare, because he was so smart and well-read and could speak multiple languages, I presume, he put that word into the English language. Yeah, I think the way you could think about it is he popularized it. Like they, the, the French upper class definitely used champion, but he made it standard. Like bedroom is a great example. That, that's apparently a British, that's a Shakespeare word apparently. And really? so... Yeah, very strange stuff like that. And that, that's all to do with his, his era. And surely he was, he was using a lot of these words with the influence of his friends and his peers and all that. But it's codified in him. And that comes to that final, and this, that, that's pretty much the end, that comes to that final moment where through Shakespeare, you, you unite the Germanic language, the French together. As you, you get the unity of German and Latin. And that becomes the Western sort of the great representation of the, the Western world in some sense that goes over to America. And what's interesting about America is it's packed full of R1B as well, still. And through America becomes the dominant world language. And that's, you can, you can tie this language that we're all speaking back to these original people in the Russian steppes. And in some sense, it does bring a, a massive amount of solidarity to the European family as a whole, extending all the way over to India and all the way over to Eastern Europe and down into Iran and everything. You have this giant genetic imprint and all these people related, and now they have a common language that they can all talk to each other. And that is super interesting considering that our biggest problem in the past was our ability, our, our inability to remember stuff. You know. So any last comments or anything like that, gentlemen? Yeah, Shakespeare was an Englishman. That's it. That's it, to be honest, mate. I'm thinking, uh, do you want me? All right, all right. You did it right. We're going to look at it again, James. What's this say? (laughs) (laughs) It's not even Irish. It is Norse, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Also, I did look it up. It did last for about 300 years, so well oh, done. But it did also say that Dublin was the biggest slave port in all of Europe. It was probably for the original Irish. So you, you have just completely screwed yourself over there. <laughs> Not at all. That's, that, like, that's literally this British propaganda now at this point. Um, so any thoughts on all this? Uh, any any you know, riffs at all? What, what's the sus? Any... any um, ideas so we just keep looking at the kingdom of dublin i really don't mind no 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 <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely an interesting topic it connects you to your past and it's um it's because we were talking about this on the nietzsche stream obviously when nietzsche was a philologist it means he studied old words and that's how he was able to piece together what morality was and shush fluffy how that uh, how that changed over a long period of time so by doing this same thing it does connect you to in a way which which nothing else seems to be able to do so it's very useful and of course it does also cement the idea that english people are genetically better than irish people it just has happened throughout all of history it's never been a can you can you literally just open your eyes and look at the screen and try tell them that to me it's not irish it's not well, irish okay so if it's not irish then what is this look at this tiny little bit of yellow and it's literally like a, a third the size of the kingdom of dublin comparatively to the size of england like in some sense this tiny fraction irish island is dominating the english look at this up here as well like i don't know i don't know i i just use my eyes man i just observe what i see you know so this is actually making me sad to watch you try and turn it. it's, it's upsetting um, my stomach invictus any thoughts here sir yeah i also found it interesting with uh i've been reading echo homo or exo homo by nietzsche lately and he riffs a lot about nationalism there and I think we give some credence to that, that it's more of an pan-European, well, as we said, layers of identities maybe, yes. and pan-European, and that nationalist borders within Europe might be more arbitrarily there than we think. Yeah, this is a very interesting and complicated topic because, well, I guess the best way to understand a nation, and because nationalism is only like a 200-year-old idea, and in some sense what they were attempting to do with nationalism is they had this problem where you would have the Norths who understand that they actually belong to Ireland. They belong to the kingdom of Dublin of Ireland. And, and that's truly where they're from. And then the Brits would have the, the Anglo-Saxons and then they'd have the Welsh and it would all be this big mess, this layer. And if you're divided, you're weak. You need to unite people somehow. Like um, the Germans had an awful problem with this as well because the Germans were notoriously divisive yes. into tribes. And so nationalism for, for them was, and, and for, for the Brits and for everybody pretty much, was this idea of we need to unite under a single identity. So I guess this is the big question is that um, identity becomes massive and um, they would need to unite under a single identity. And so stuff like Shakespeare codifying a common language that integrates the French, the, Brit, the, the early British words that probably made it in there, the Norse words that made it in there and, and the, the vast amount of Germanic words that made it in there. That gives you a foundation to unite the people together. And usually what happens then is that the, 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 the hierarchy changes quite a lot. Now, it's, it's usually not as straightforward like that at all, but nationalism does, does have that power to do that. And Nietzsche was in some sense criticizing that, being like it's, it's dangerous to take a royal family and try and make them the same as the, the Britons who were conquered, uh, who got, like, you know, the ancient Celts who got conquered. Like he, Nietzsche would be like qualitatively the, the royal family would be better than the, the Celts, the Irish, which I don't know. I think, I think James kind of edited that in more than anything. I don't think that's true. But it's, it's that type of idea of uh, uniting under identities and it happened all around the world. It happened uh, all around Europe. It was very much a recent phenomenon and you see it all around. And so big questions have to be asked, like how, how are you supposed to do that? 
what does how does it change now that everything's been globalized like you have situations where like james is a good example like james is half irish like is what does that mean for england because you can't people have this weird conception of nationalism nowadays where they say it's sort of like it's almost like the nation is like a corporation and it doesn't matter who the people are in it and that's really weird because that's not what they originally needed to do it for they needed to try get all the people united somehow but at the same time i guess they were they were corporatizing the people and then these things become super confusing and and um, they they need myths to tie them together and everything paradise lost is a good example of a famous um famous poem that it was actually used to unite the, the British people under an identity in some sense. Like that's what Milton's idea was. He wanted to create something that was against the Royal crown in some sense. And so, um, these, these things become super interesting. And, uh, it, it, I guess it's a huge question for our modern era. Yeah. I think it was Harold Bloom. Who's, he must be close to death now. He's like 98, 99 years old, hugely significant bloke. He believes that Shakespeare was more important than the Bible was. It's Jesus Lord blows your mind that like he is the archetypal English thing, but then that stretches Matt. Then you know his characters like Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, for example. So he wasn't an Englishman, and it was spread out all over Europe. So yeah, go for some kind of some kind of canonical identity along along these lines, doing it on purely on nationalistic lines. It doesn't seem to make any sense, especially if you look like genetically. It's, it seems to be drawn up arbitrarily. So the only way you'd have to do it would be, would be haplogroups. So yeah, it would be it would be on some kind of pan-European thing. But then the functionality of that in terms of politics and the functionality of that in general and the overlap between different haplogroups. Like, for example, I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I imagine there are places in the world that speak English that aren't uh, an R haplogroup. Yeah. yeah. So, so and then it just becomes one whole big mess. But it's definitely food for thought. It's very interesting. I know next to nothing about this stuff. So it's been very nice watching you talk today. My, uh, my, yeah. anon- my anonymous friend. Do you know what's weird is that there aren't many places around the world that aren't or haplogroup that speak English that I can think of. Yeah, African- I, I, can't, I can't think of any, but I imagine that there would be. I think African-Americans would be the only example um, yeah. of like a, a big demographic. Do you know what I mean? America speaks English, but America was Anglo-Saxon um, yeah, Western European. And maybe you could talk about the Eastern Europeans that came over. And that, that could be another big demographic. Jesus, generally speaking, it's all uh, Western Europe, Australia. Mm. Yeah, like it, this, this stuff is very tied to the, the, the haplogroup. Now, another good example is Argentina. That's a Latin language, but there's a huge amount of Germans there. Um, so it's Italian, Spanish, and Germans that are down there. So you've got like quite a lot of Germans speaking, but that, that's, that's or as well, you know, it's the same thing. So maybe, um, maybe, maybe yeah, Africa because of South Africa and all that stuff. So that, that could be going on. But yeah, yeah, like it's a good point. Oh, and India, that could be another one. That yeah. Could be another one. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm kind of invalidating whatever I was talking about. But uh, th- that is, it is a super big question. And I guess we're not here to be like, okay, guys, we've figured out the political solutions, how we're going to all unite and all this stuff. But uh, it is about understanding this stuff because I guess, as I was saying, our biggest problem is our uh, lack of consciousness to an identity. And um, yeah. Well, with, in regards to India and Persia, it's, it's been a long, long time since the language has been introduced by the ruling classes and then have been withdrawn from that. So the... The population in India might not be the same that has introduced the language. Yes, yes, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So these things, these things, we we all do not know, and now we have the the DNA to to enlighten us, and it can become super interesting. And it's an important thing to understand about ourselves. 
it's very, very blackpilling though to, to know that the Irish are related to the English. But I guess it's not, it's, there's a white pill at the end of it to understand the Kingdom of Dublin. That's really why I'm here. <laughs> Do some research on the Kingdom of Dublin. It's, it's against what you think it is. I'm sure it is. I'm pretty sure you're right. I think it was a slave, uh, slave state or something like that. People, I'm, uh, I'm going to wrap it up. If you have any last thoughts, I guess we can bounce them out. But that is everything from us, I guess. If you would li- like to, to discuss some of this stuff, if you want to get into language, I might even link down below um, my, my channel where I talk about phrasal verbs and whatnot if you want to learn that. And um, by all means, if you like this stuff, hop on to Patreon. You'll be able to get into Discord and we can, we can talk about your haplogroup and see if you were a member of the Kingdom of Dublin and you're welcome into paradise or not. Any last thoughts, Jens, or are you just going to say goodbye? Uh, yeah, bye. Bye-bye. 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 Yeah, I'll, I'll be the same people. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.